Let's turn to Luke 24 and uh, verses uh, 45 to 48. Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Well, I want you to just uh, look at this chapter and uh, notice some of the details that are there and uh, things that John also tells us about in John 20 that Luke doesn't highlight. And he says some interesting things too. So here's this passage in Luke 24. And uh, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all reveal things to us about the disciples that um, we never admit if we were uh, writing some uh, pious story of years gone by when men were really um, heroic in their faith. Uh, if it was a fabrication, if it was a, a piece of pious fiction, well, we wouldn't have written this story in this way. The disciples, both before and after the empty tomb, and before and after they meet Jesus personally, they're characterized by fear and perplexity and doubt and worry and ignorance and disbelief. Uh, Luke, as you work your way through that passage that was read in your hearing, that the angels once and twice Jesus on the road to Emmaus and then back in Jerusalem, they uh, have to say to the doubting disciples, don't you know the scriptures? Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus here in our text says, this is what is written. And didn't he tell them many times about what he would do dying for our sins and rising on the third day according to the scriptures. And so here at the core of uh, Easter Sunday is a picture of stumbling, sinning disciples paralyzed by unbelief. You wouldn't have written the story that way, would you? If you had made it up, if you were trying to say, we need those heroes today. I want to say to you that no atheist who has ever lived experienced the depth of doubt, the anguish, the blackness that these disciples knew. You can see it. You can see defeat on their faces, woe in their hearts by their actions and their words. And we're told by Luke that even when Jesus comes to them himself, they still disbelieve for joy. They said to themselves, it's too good to be true. This, this is, can't be real. And Matthew tells us that on the hill of ascension, still some doubted. And he'd been 40 days with them then. Well, what's going on here? What's Luke showing us in this passage? Well, um, I want to zero in on the fact that uh, Luke connects the resurrection of Jesus Christ with us, with our purpose in life, with our chief end with our mission in whatever of the future lies before us, it is grounded and earthed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so I want you to see, firstly, how Luke draws attention 
to the forgiveness that there is for sinners through Jesus the Messiah. Some of you, the greatest problem is the great chains that bind you to your past and actions and deeds you have done then. And there's forgiveness. And then um, that salvation comes to us through the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That is also here in our text. And then the resurrection of Christ is presented to us by our Lord as the vindication of the work he did, that it was a finished, accomplished work, a good work, a proper work, a 100% work, and God then demonstrates his acceptance of the forgiveness that Jesus has accomplished by raising him from the dead. And finally then, uh, Luke comments on our mission and our purpose in life. All the Gospels do this. If you read the Bible in a quiet half an hour this afternoon, then Matthew 28 does it, the Great Commission and the Resurrection. They are joined together. And Mark 16 and verses 7 and 8, uh, and John 20, 21, they're there. Whatever you dip in the last chapters of the Gospel on an Easter Sunday afternoon, you will, you will see this, and you'll just let the uh, self-testifying truthfulness of the, the resurrection narratives uh, create again in you, renew within you your trust in a living and a risen Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the first day of the week. The women have gone to the tomb to properly do what they suspect the men didn't do properly in anointing the body of Jesus. Um, and they've had a Sabbath uh, then when they are inactive and despairing. And uh, his lifeless body had been taken down. They'd taken pinches and pulled the nails out of his hands and feet. And they'd wrapped cloths and uh, they'd wrapped uh, uh, frankincense and preserving fragrant oils on the bandages uh, around the body and they've uh, taken it then to the garden too. And it's part of their love for him, part of God's love for his dear son, that he suffered enough and he gives him a splendid tomb then. No rats scuttling in the corners, no other dead men's bones, no one ever, uh, ever was laid in that tomb before. And there he is. And uh, it's part of their devotion uh, towards this body. Uh, that we are body and soul made in the image of God and we have respect for our bodies both in life and in death and so uh, we, we give them honor in death and this is what the women want to do as the men had done before them and they had hope in the resurrection didn't they? They knew what Job had said I know that my redeemer lives and that though flesh destroys my body and worms will eat it up yet I will see God, I will see him I will see the Lord for myself and there were the narratives of uh, Elisha and the rising of the little boy and Elijah and the rising of the little boy and Enoch walking with God and not because God had taken him and there's the whole momentum and Daniel speaks of the resurrection of the body. So they, they, had this, they had this faint belief. Well, when they get there, Jesus isn't there. And there are messengers from God that are there in the tomb. And uh, the women, when they hear these messengers speak to them, these young men in white, they run. A host of 
four or five middle-aged women running with seriousness on their faces through the streets of Jerusalem. Early in the morning, they run to the place where the apostles are staying and they say, he's not here. Angels have told us, why are we looking for the living amongst the dead? The great message of resurrection proclaimed by these women. And of course the disciples could hardly believe it. They think the women are full of wishful thinking. And they made up this tale. And uh, Peter, Peter doesn't wait. Peter runs then. They ran one way and Peter went back the way they came faster than the women did. Um, It's strange to think of Peter there, like him. The last time we've read about him in the Gospels, he's been denying his Lord with cursing and hardness and shame. And now uh, he hears he's alive and he's got to see it with his own eyes. And John writes and he says, I ran too. Uh, I beat him there. Every man knows how that works, you know. For the rest of your life then, the two of them would smile together and talk about that first morning and that first sight. And uh, Peter telling someone, as soon as I heard from Mary Magdalene that she she had heard a a messenger from God saying he was alive from the dead, I ran to the tomb. Yes, but I beat you there, John said. Yes, but I went in, Peter said. John peeked in like Mary did, but Peter... He pushes him aside and into the tomb he goes. Nobody. Grave clothes neatly folded. Nobody. And they come back and they tell the disciples, it's true what the women have told us. It's absolutely true. He's not there. But we didn't see him. And they're still doubting. They're not people that are seizing anything to believe that Jesus is is bigger than death. They're not people who are grasping at any straws, any pieces of flimsy evidence. They're not people that are hoping against hope. They are people captivated by unbelief, the preposterousness of the Christian message that, that Jesus Christ is more powerful than death itself. Then Luke changes the scene. He Closes that scene. Scene two comes and he takes us to the road. And two men with their backs turned to Jerusalem going home to Emmaus. Two discouraged disciples. And they're talking about all the things that happened, that should have happened. Why didn't they happen in a different way? Why haven't they been braver? Why haven't they resisted and defended their Lord? And they are utterly discouraged. And then Jesus shows up. You know the story so well. And uh, they don't know it's Jesus. He's changed. He isn't the same then broken, pierced, helpless, dying man on that cross. He's, He's changed. There's a vigor. There's a newness of life about him. And he's walking with them. What are you talking about, he says. What's, why are you looking so serious? They said to him, you've got to be kidding. You haven't heard what's, what's happened? You've, you knew Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? You knew his teaching? You knew the extraordinary things he said and what he did? You know how he healed every sick person who came to him? Didn't make any charges? 
The impact he had. We all have got friends, family, cousins. that uh, Their lives have been turned upside down by Jesus. We loved him. And they said, we hoped he'd been the one. The, the promised one. We hoped it was him. The, the time to favor Zion had come and uh, we were going to see a new, wonderful new day. The, the great prophecies that Isaiah had made about what would happen in the last days when the seed of the woman would come and bruise the serpent's head. When Abram's seed would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. When great David's greatest son would reign in authority and power. We, we thought, we hoped against hope that it would have been him. But now look, he's dead. They killed him. So Jesus begins then. This is his opportunity. Haven't you read your Bibles? He says to them. And some of you are just in that same state. You've got this sort of Christian faith, but not a real assurance and confidence that he is your own personal Lord. Because you're just not here every Sunday hearing the word of God. And you're not reading the Bible for yourselves and asking God to apply that truth to your own hearts and lives. So on the way to Emmaus, he doesn't say, it's me. He doesn't say that. He starts with the scriptures. He starts where you and I and everyone since his ascent into heaven has had to start with the Bible, with the word of God. And he opens up in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, about his suffering and about his death and burial and his resurrection. And they are just mind-expanded by all this. And they say, Oh, don't go now. Come and, uh, come and eat with us. And he goes in and then he breaks the bread and just that so familiar gesture. And they know <laughs> this is Jesus himself. And he moves away. He disappears. They take their eyes off him for a moment and he's gone. He's gone. And they don't wait up. They put their cloaks back on and they turn around and they hurry back. The same way as they came. and they've told the, They tell the disciples what's uh, happened to them. But before they can speak, the disciples tell them um, that uh, Jesus, Jesus is alive. And they said, yes, we know he's met with us too. And then it's happy. Happy, happy. Is it? Everyone's believing now. Is that so? But Luke tells us that even when Jesus arrives, there were some still doubting. Here are people gripped by unbelief. It's like our land today, isn't it? The whole generation of young people now. So superior, so dismissive of this trust that the greatest reality in all the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then something dramatic takes place. Something so powerful takes place so that every one of them is changed. And every one of them, except for John, is going to die for their belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They're going to die because of that. John is going to end his days in... Uh, an island prison, 
in the confinement and restriction, but God will then give him a word like he gave a word to John Bunyan in a prison, which has been a blessing to the church ever since. But what, what changed them? That they lived for the rest of their lives speaking of the risen Christ. Well, what happened was God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, equal in power and glory to the Father and to the Son, came into their hearts and minds and understanding and souls and spirits in the inner being, the dispositional complex, which is uh, at the center of our lives, out of which all the issues of life come. And he, he changed values and enthusiasms and understanding and commitment and changed them completely. So that what initially they found impossible to believe, like some of you find it impossible to believe that Jesus rose on the third day. They came to understand. And they believed it more than life itself. Or they would forfeit life. They didn't have to live. But they had to believe that Jesus Christ was alive forevermore. And every one of you needs that resurrection power, that enlightenment in your lives. You, you need that. Desperately. And Luke connects then a, a purpose in living to the resurrection. A mission in life to that resurrection. He's telling them we have to have resurrection motivated life. To live the life. The, the capacity to live a godly a credible, godly life, a holy life, a loving life, a caring, concerned life, that doesn't come by saying to yourself, I'm going to be better every day and making resolutions to be better and becoming more religious. But it comes when the Holy Spirit homes in on you and changes you from the inside. Four things then, all right? Then we close. Firstly, the Messiah's forgiveness. You see what he says there. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And that's what I'm doing then, as my Savior does here. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached. In his name to all nations, Wales too. Is going to have repentance and forgiveness of sins. So 2,000 years have passed and here we are. We, we are believing this. And we are testifying to one another that uh, our hallelujahs. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. That's what we say to one another. So he opened their minds. I can't do that. But God can do that. And the context in which he normally and generally works is by his servants living the Christian life and preaching the Christian message. If you're going to have resurrection power, you've got to understand you need your sins forgiven. If you don't know that you need to be forgiven, then you are really not facing up to 
what God says about you. I once preached a sermon here at the funeral service of a dear deacon in our congregation. And there was one lady who was very offended at what I said. She talked to a friend afterwards. She said, he said he was a sinner. And I knew him. I knew he wasn't a sinner. Well, that dear brother would be one of the first to say, oh, she didn't know me. I'm a sinner. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've had other gods before God. We've made idols of things and people and stuff. We've taken God's name in vain. We've not kept a day special every week. We've dishonored our fathers and mothers. We've been violent. We've been lustful. We've stolen things that aren't ours. We've told lies we've coveted we're sinners all of us we fail to love God with all our hearts and we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves we're sinners in the sight of God and we need forgiveness and the only forgiveness there is is uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord it's quite possible that there are some among you who feel You've done all right in your life. Your name has never appeared in the papers. And I'm so glad about that. And you've been faithful in your marriage. And you've been good parents. And I'm so glad to know that. And I want us all to be like that. And sometimes I think some Christ, non-Christian families are more, more happy and contented than some Christian families are. And that's to our shame. So we're not boasting about ourselves or preaching ourselves. But we're saying... But the only sinless person this world has ever seen is Jesus Christ. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens, Jesus. And he's God's lamb. And through him, forgiveness of sins come. You see, why did Peter run to the tomb? Well, because he remembered an incident not so long ago of which he's deeply ashamed. He's still crestfallen that he could have been intimidated by a little girl and denied with swearing and cursing that he knew the Lord. And when he heard that Jesus might be alive, he wanted him. Now that's grace, isn't it? You'd think if you betrayed someone and swore that you didn't know them and didn't care for them, that you would never want to see them again. You'd be crestfallen and blush with shame when you saw them. But Peter wasn't like that because he knew that the grace of Jesus Christ was greater than his sin. And he runs. There was hope. He had heard Jesus once say to a paralyzed man, whose friends are so eager for him to come into contact with Jesus that they unroofed the roof and lowered him down at Jesus' feet. And Jesus said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And oh, he longed to know that personally. I heard the voice of Jesus say, my sins are forgiven. He wanted to hear that for himself. And so he ran that he might meet him who had risen from the dead. Some of you then are so torn up about the sins that others have committed against you that you haven't thought about the sins that you've committed against God. 
And really, you must just abandon that resentment and that bitterness that's eating you up internally. And you must think to yourself, well, I need my trespasses to be forgiven too. And I'm telling you of one who can make the foulest clean, can make scarlet sins whiter than snow. And that's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the second thing we see here is how forgiveness is accomplished. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer. There is something in the nature of God, of who God is, that without the shedding of blood, without the blood of God the Son, there can be no forgiveness. That's that's who God is. For atonement to be made, an atoner must be provided, and he must be holy and blameless. And that's Jesus Christ our Lord. So all his life was a life of suffering, the contradiction of sinners against him, but particularly, oh, especially on the cross, the pains that he endured, our salvation has secured. That's what we've sung today. Our sins imputed to him, charged to his account. God doing this great transaction, laying upon him our guilt and imputing to us his lovely life, his righteousness. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you uh, saw in the paper this week some of the crimes that people had uh, committed and they were put on trial, and the sentences were actually charged to their victims and not to them, you would say, well, that's impossible. That's no justice. And you would feel uh, just overwhelmed that such a thing could happen. But that's what happened to the Lord Jesus. He interposed his precious blood. He came and stood between you, the criminal, and the righteous law of God. And he said, sink your arrows of wrath into my heart and life. And that's what the Lord did. He judged him and spared him not, that we might be spared. The cross isn't God cancelling our sin. It's just removing it, liquidating it. He's not offering something in the place of what your sins deserve. He's offering what your sins deserve. He's doing that. He's bearing them. He's absorbing them. And that's how our sins are forgiven. And God wants that to be told uh, to the ends of the earth. And then the, uh, the third thing that we are told here is the proof of of what I'm saying the evidence you say um, you know you preachers you all talk about sin and you talk about forgiveness and it's just words how can I believe what you say is true well one argument is our experience over many years of the the kindness and goodness and reality and the love of God to us. But I'm not using that argument now. It's a mighty argument. 
but that on the third day Jesus rose. The stone was rolled away somehow. The body was gone. No one wanted it. His disciples wanted to anoint it and his enemies wanted to keep it locked up forever. But it disappeared. And then he appeared. He appeared on a road walking with his disciples. He appeared in an upper room. He appeared speaking to Peter. He appeared but the side of the Sea of Galilee, cooking fish and bread and giving it to them to eat. He appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. He appeared on the Mount of Ascension. He appeared to 500 of them, like the Queen at uh, Buckingham Palace, uh, uh, welcoming favored people there. He greets them and he walks among them and he talks to them, the centurion and the cleansed grateful leper. And there's a little trio, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he spends time with them all. And for years afterwards, that's all they talked about. And they welcomed people traveling from afar. And, you were there. Oh, we were. And they told their inquirers about him. And lives were changed. So people who were afraid and doubting and locked the doors now could stand and preach to thousands of people and suffer for his sake. The resurrection, it's the great vindication by God that his son wasn't a criminal, he wasn't a blasphemer, he didn't deserve this death at all. That the Sanhedrin had been horribly wrong that Caiaphas and Annas were not high priests touched with sympathy, but were brutalized men, power-hungry, sick men, who taunted a young man as he hung and suffered there. And here God says, ah, no, he's my son, and he raises him from the dead, and he lives. And in that life, then, he changes the life very quickly, of thousands and thousands of people. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, uh, our mission is to serve the Lord by his resurrection power. And that's what he says in verses 47 and, and 48. He says, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, these young men and women. Are suddenly being given a, a mission to go into all the world, starting there in Jerusalem, which hated their Lord and killed him, and there to speak there of Jesus Christ, that from now on their lives revolve around Jesus. Their marriages, their homes revolve around Jesus. What they do with their money revolves around Jesus, how they spend their weeks, why one day is special every, every week. It all revolves around who he is and what he has done and what they memorized and what they quoted and their ability to pray to God and the words they use. It all, it all flows to them from the Lord Jesus. That's what they were to speak. That's what they were to witness to all the nations. 
and mission is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's earthed in that. It's the foundation of what we believe. Paul tells the Philippians, I want to know him. And more than that, I want to know the power of his resurrection in my life. I can only survive. I can only go through the sufferings that I've gone through and the journeyings and the betrayals and the encouragements without getting a big head. I can only live like this by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He prays for the Ephesian Christians and he wants them to know the surpassing greatness of the power that's in God towards us who believe and he's longing for that, for them. What are they to do with their lives? They are to love their neighbors as themselves. How can they do that? As themselves. By the power of resurrection life. What are they to do with their lives? Love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. How can they do that? By the power of resurrection life. What are they to do with their lives? Love their enemies. Do good to them that abuse them. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Overcome evil with good. How can they live like that? By the power of resurrection life. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in them. And to do it meekly and sweetly, with reverence. And how can they live like that, always being ready? Well, because of the power of resurrection life in them, in their hearts, in their minds, in their values, in their thinking. That's why it's absolutely essential for you, not just to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, which you ought to believe, but that you can have resurrection power to live. No longer just with a little bit of religious energy once in a while, but daily a a motor going on, a power enabling, giving inexhaustibly to you. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I can climb any mountain. I can ford any river. I can carry any burden. I can overcome any temptation because the risen Christ enables me and helps me. Paul prays for the Ephesians. I pray that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through the Spirit. In the inner man. You have an inner man, you see. I can only just see your outside, but God knows your inner man. And for some, it's like a deflated beach ball. For some, it's like an old prune. There's no attractiveness or beauty in your inner man. But there can be. It can be a strong inner man, a lovely inner man, a Christ-like inner man. If the, uh, the beautiful indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. You can't live like a Christian without resurrection life. And that's the gift of God. That's the grace of God that we celebrate most of all, this blessed Lord's day. Do you know him savingly?
Do you know Jesus Christ savingly? That he's your redeemer. That he's your Lord. And he's helped you and brought you here today because he loves you. Are you aware of that? Are you also aware that there's another power at work in you that would want you to dismiss all you've heard this morning? And for you to go on coldly, your own Lord and your own Master, coming to church when it pleases you, and not your life now, a living sacrifice given to him. There's a great principle in Scripture that we find life by dying, by dying to selfishness, by dying to say, well, I'll do it my way. And we die to that. And we live then to Jesus Christ, to take up our cross and deny ourselves, and, and we follow him all through next week, now Monday, Tuesday, all the days of the week, following the Lord Jesus Christ in every relationship, in your home, in your work, at school, at university, into old age, in sickness and in health, you are following and following the Lord Jesus. And for that, you must have resurrection life. And so I'm saying to you, you ask him for it. You cry to him. You, you say, Lord, give me that life. I must have it. I, I've run out. I, I'm just dry. I leak. And I've got so little resources myself. But oh, what illimitable resources there are in you. And I cast myself on your love and on your mercy, on your great forgiveness, that I live from now on for you. And you, you talk to God. You, you, you say these things to God yourself. And uh, no one who talks seriously to God like that has ever been ignored. Not one. Not one. So, uh, children, you talk to the Lord. Men and women, you talk to the Lord. Our Father, bless your word to us this day. Thank you for a risen Savior. Thank you for the living power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your life in the lives of so many here. We pray for all the people that have heard this word today. That they might from now on. Stop living for themselves, but living for him who gave his life for them. Oh, grant it in your mercy and in your love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.